Welcome to the Tabletop Sportcast with your host, James Cast. This podcast is dedicated to my favorite hobby, tabletop sports. I review games in my collection, discuss how I approach different projects, and even recap the latest games for my tabletop. Have questions, thoughts, or feedback? Feel free to reach me at tabletopsportcast at gmail.com or check out the Tabletop Sportcast page on Facebook. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, take a minute to give us a five-star rating. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, go look for uh, a way to support us on Patreon. Today is episode number 44, and we're going to do a deep dive on and really going to start off a new series uh, talking a lot about History Maker Baseball. Uh, and I'm going to talk about, it's going to be like a, a couple episode series. Uh, I'm not sure if it's two or three at this point, but certainly at least two. And today's episode is going to look at the, the main chart in the game action booklet. And we're going to talk about how you develop your narrative as the game unfolds in front of you. So let's talk a little bit about playing History Maker Baseball using the, uh, let's see, the official name, the Game Action Booklet 5.0 edition. And when you're playing History Maker Baseball, a lot of the game is a kind of revolves around the narrative of how a baseball game will unfold before you on your tabletop. And if you've seen other people play History Maker Baseball on YouTube videos, um, even Keith Avalone has done so on his play space, you basically get the idea. It's it's 3D6 roll, and for your for most of the main chart rolls, you're going to roll your 3d6 and you're going to read the numbers in ascending order. Uh, they're they're colored. You're going to have a black, a blue, and a red die. The colors will come into play for some of the results, but for the most part, you're just looking at the order of the numbers. That leads to basically six sections of the chart, depending on what the lead die is, but really... For the narrative, there's really just four sections of the chart. There's The first section is your lead die one chart. The second section is your lead die two. Set third section, lead die three. And then the fourth section includes lead die four, five, and six. And obviously, because you're always reading them in ascending order, the most results are in your lead die one. The fewest results are in lead die six. I mean, lead die six only has one result. It's six, 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 because... Once six is the lead die, it means the other two have to be six as well. Otherwise, it would have been one of the earlier results, right? Then you're looking at three different columns within the chart. So you've got uh, your pitcher. You always check your pitcher first, then the batter, and then the end result, which could be the fielder, um, but more than likely is just like a result in the field um, or just an end result. And that's how you would basically re read the narrative. Now, 
what's amazing is even though that this chart takes place on just two simple pages, when you open up your book, you open kind of towards the middle of the book, pages four and five fall open, and you're presented with this main chart. And you would think, okay, well, 3D6, you know, I've got basically, um, you know, 216 results. Yes and no, right? You've got 216 results, but because of all the different combinations, I think there's actually a lot more than that. And I haven't done the math to figure out exactly how many there are. But what's interesting is to read through the narrative on them and understand how the play kind of unfolds a little bit in front of you. So let's take a look at some basic themes that I use when I'm playing this game out. Uh, and a lot of it derives from the instructions that are given to you about what happens on a ground out, what happens on a fly out, what happens with the base runners. And it helps you paint the narrative of how much of all the detail that takes place on each of the plays. So for instance, section one is basically double play ground balls. They are also going to mostly be a single base advance for the runners, unless there's two outs. Uh, although a fast runner could score from second on the base hits. And the flyouts do not allow for any tagging immediately. You could always try to, you know, take the extra base with one of the strategy cards. So from a narrative standpoint, what are you basically getting here? Well, I'm for the most part getting really hard hit ground balls. I mean, double play ground balls are going to be sharply hit ground balls. And if the field is able to make a play on it, they have a good chance to turn two, especially depending on the base situation. The fly balls are weak pop flies for the most part, maybe a shallow fly ball. And that's why runners can't tag. And even the base hits to get through are hit so sharply and probably towards one of the outfielders that the chances of getting that second base when they're moving around the bases is pretty slim. Um, and really the only chance you have is with the two outs because obviously then it, runners are going on contact. So that's kind of the narrative I get in that section of the book. In section two, the lead died two section, now I'm talking about fielder's choice on ground outs. I have a chance to score on a fly ball if I'm a fast runner, active runner. And for the most part, the runners are going to go a single base, although an, a fast runner, active runner, is able to go from first to third on the ground balls. So now what I'm seeing in terms of the narrative here for the ground balls is a little more difficult ball to handle, either not hit as sharply or maybe hit into the hole a little bit more. And the fielder, if it's a ground out, is able to make the play, but they've only got one option. They've got one option on probably the lead runner uh, to get the out. If the ball gets through the infield, then maybe it's just not hit hard enough. Maybe the outfielder's got to cover some ground to get to it because now there is an opportunity for the active runner to get that extra base. And the same thing for the fly balls. These are a little bit deeper, not really a deep fly ball yet. Probably just normal outfield depth, maybe into the gap a little bit where the outfielder has to, isn't able to fully get positioned as they make the catch. And now that allows 
again, an active runner to take advantage of that situation and tag from third. So right off the bat, you get a little bit narrative between those two. Now we'll go to section three, lead die three. Again, fielder's choice on a ground out. Only a stoic runner, slow runner, is unable to tag from third on the flyouts. Everybody else is able to score. And runners are always going to go two bases on any hit unless it's a stoic slow runner on first base. So again, what you're getting here in your narrative. Um, more than likely, these are balls that are well-placed, right? So now I'm thinking this is definitely going to be a ball that is, if it's a ground out, is probably in the hole. Um, a good play by a fielder is able to get to it and make a force out at one of the lead bases, uh, probably the base closest to them in most cases. Fly balls a little bit deeper now, probably not quite warning track here, but certainly where the outfielder has had to backpedal or ease or else maybe drift deeper into the gap to be able to make the play because now most runners are going to be able to tag from home unless they are really slow. And then most base runners are able to go two bases here. So again, ball feels like it's in the gap, down the lines, something along those lines where the outfielder has to make some movement to get to the ball and then position themselves for the throw. That enables most base runners to read it pretty cleanly, see that it's going to drop in for a base hit, and then take the turn at the base, uh, whatever base that might be. The last couple sections, four, five, and six, lead dive four, five, and six are all combined into one section. And on this one, runners advance one base on the ground outs. Runner on third scores on a fly out. And then runners are going to go two bases on singles, and they will score on a double. So they're able to score even from first on a double. Unless, of course, it's a stoic, slow runner on first base. So now what I'm envisioning, mostly because the runners are able to advance on a ground out, this feels like it's a very slowly hit ground ball, probably a difficult ground ball to be handled by the fielder. Um, probably charging in or maybe just waiting for it on the extra hop, whatever it might be, their only play is going to be at first, and everybody else is able to move up cleanly. Fly balls on this one definitely feel like warning track fly balls. Um, because pretty much anybody is going to score on these. So, uh, again, either well into the gap that is being tracked down or actually out to the warning track where the outfielders pretty much don't have a play at a runner tagging from third. And then a base hit certainly feels like it's in the gap or down the lines. Um, outfielders are definitely getting out of position, probably either going into the corner to get it, especially with the double uh, you know, runner scoring from first on a double makes it seem like they've really got a range deep on there. Maybe it's a ball off the wall, plays a little tricky hop, and then the outfielder's trying to track that down and then turn around, make that throw in, um, enabling base runners to, you know, move up pretty quickly. So that gives you a little bit of the narrative of the different sections. And I think the narrative is really important. You'll start to see this also. Uh, reinforced a little bit with some of the descriptors for some of the results. Uh, for instance, in the 
uh, fourth section here. Uh, one of the results when it gets past the pitcher and it gets past the batter and it ends up in the fielder, it says it's a difficult ground out. So that tells you right off the bat, like, okay, this infielder has to make a pretty good play to get the out at first. They're going to make the out at first, but in the meantime, runners are able to advance if there's any runners on base. Um, you've also got a result on here, deep fly out to right field in that same section. Uh, you've also got deep drive glove, which is one of the uh, micro chart results, uh, which tells you that we're going to have a play at the fence. So there's a lot of things that help reinforce that narrative on these charts. Vice versa, if I go to um, the, the first section, again, we talked about hard hit ground balls and things like that. Um, there are some descriptors here that help like tell that narrative as well. Uh, I see things like a pop fly. Um, I also see, you know, ground outs going right to a specific fielder, which tells me that it was a direct shot right at them and it's an easy play for them to make. Um, let me see. Do I have one here for the fly balls? It doesn't really say anything about a shallow fly necessarily, but, you know, Again, probably more just a straightforward play for those outfielders there, too. So that gives you a little bit of the narrative there. And then what's important to look at as you, you know, one of the things I always tell people that I'm introducing to History Maker Baseball is take the time to actually read through, especially on the main chart, like what do these results look like? It'll really help you understand how the different uh, qualities come into play, how they inter, how they work against each other. Uh, there's pretty good balance here. So it's not like you could just say like, oh, if I have an ace pitcher, you know, which is somebody with a low ERA, that they're going to shut down a power hitter. Um, they might on some results, but then there's other results where it may go a different way uh, for those ace pitchers. But it's important to read through it and get a feel for what's happening and it you know sitting down and just reading through the playbook and just testing out like what does the scenario look like enables you to really um, get a feel for how the narrative is going to play out while you're playing this on your tabletop so let's walk through like a couple of simple examples in here uh, i'm not going to go in depth on all of these but we'll just take a little bit of a look at some of them right Generally, what you're going to do is, you know, um, you're obviously testing for the most part. There are a couple of exceptions here, but for the most part, you're going to test the pitcher on a quality. Bad or good, right? So, you know, both batters and pitchers have good and bad qualities. So for the pitcher, if it's a good quality we're testing, they have the opportunity to prevent a good result for the hitter. If it's a bad result for the pitcher, then you have a chance for them to, you know, if they're a good pitcher, they're going to avoid giving up an easy hit to the offense. Same thing for the batter, good and bad qualities. Um, if it reaches the batter and they have a good quality, they have a chance to really deliver a big hit. But if they have one of the bad qualities, then there's a good chance that they're going to fail in a specific opportunity and, miss out on a chance to have a good result. And then your final result for the fielder rarely actually tests the fielder's ability. Those will happen in other places. 
There are some drama results, which will take you to one of the other, um, you know, uh, tables. One of the, you know, the drama tables are one of the micro tables uh, that you'll go to during the course of a game. But for the most part, they're going to end up being, you know, out results, flyouts, groundouts. Occasionally, the fielder one will result in a strikeout or a walk as well. Um, but for the most part, it's going to be one of the uh, fielding outs. Now, even within that, there's an opportunity, depending on certain qualities, to even add some additional results to each of these options. So for instance, let's take a look at the one, two, five result. All right, if you roll a one, two, and a five, regardless of what color they come up, you're reading them in ascending order, but if you roll a one, two, and a five, this is how you would read that play. Is the pitcher a struggler? Struggler's a bad quality. If the pitcher is a struggler, it's going to be a crack fence, and we're going to go to a micro chart that is going to allow for a big hit by the, by the batter. So bad quality for a pitcher, chance that they're going to fail in a big spot. So let's say we have a decent pitcher who doesn't have the struggler quality. Okay, we'll go to the batter column then. And now it's going to ask, is the batter patient? So this feels like a ball that's probably questionable whether or not it's even in the strike zone. Now, if they are patient, they're going to be able to draw a walk. So that's the good result that the batter is going to get. If they're not patient, so now we're going to say, okay, I don't have a struggler pitcher and I don't have a patient batter. What am I going to get? It's probably a batter who is now swinging at a questionable pitch in the strike zone. And the end result is going to be a ground out to third base. So probably didn't make good contact and hit it sharply right at the third baseman. And this is if there's a runner on first, uh, there's a chance for a double play. Now on those same results, there's two other options that can happen. So right away on one die roll, there's three options that we can get. However, on the patient result, there are also the eyeglasses, which is an umpire check. And now... Yes, I'm going to be patient. If I'm a patient batter, let's say like, you know, um, Ted Williams is up at the plate. Ted Williams is a patient batter. He sees the pitch. It's questionable. He lays off of it. All right, ball four. However, if I have a questionable or lenient umpire, instead of calling ball four, they're going to call strike three. So now from a narrative standpoint, what I'm being told is this was a three-two count. And the final pitch was right on the edge, either, you know, high in the strike zone, low in the strike zone, or off the plate on the inside corner, whatever it was, could have gone either way. Some umpires would have called it a strike. One of these two umpires would have called it, you know, I'm sorry, would have called it a strike. Other umpires would have called it ball four. So instead of Williams walking with a bad umpire or questionable or lenient umpire, Williams is going to see strike three. Probably not be happy about it either. The other option is that on the final result, the one, two, five ground out to third base, there's a little thumb symbol. And the thumb symbol refers to is the batter a whiffer? And then, and if the batter is a whiffer, then we have 
instead of a ground out, he's just going to miss the questionable pitch and he's going to strike out instead. So let's play back the narrative now on these five results, right? In these one die roll, we're able to see a few different things. I'm going to have to test to see, do I have a struggler pitcher on the mound? Do I have a patient batter at the plate? Is there a questionable or lenient umpire behind the plate? Or is the batter a whiffer? Looking at all those different characteristics to see like what these results could be. For all three of these, I can pretty much read this as like, I'm looking at a 3-2 count. The struggler pitcher is going to zip one right over the middle of the plate and the batter is going to just damage it. Um, fence result, you know, we'll get into that more, but you know, it's going to be a big hit for the offense. There's no chance for an out at that point once it goes to the fence result. So he lays one right down the heart of the plate on a three, two count batter takes advantage. They knock it out there. If it gets past the pitcher, we don't have the struggler pitcher. We have any other kind of pitcher, but not a struggler. Now we go to the batter and we just see like, how patient are you on this? Are you going to be patient enough to lay off that questionable pitch? You may, but if it's a bad umpire, they're going to ring you up anyways. And you're going to probably be ticked off that on that 3-2 count, you knew that was ball four, probably bark at the umpire after the fact, but you're still going to be out and strike out. If you're not patient, you're going to swing at the pitch, even though it's questionable whether or not it's a strike. It's a 3-2 count, so you're just saying, well, it's close enough, I better swing at it. If you're a whiffer, you're not going to make contact. You're going to miss that pitch, and it's going to be strike three. If you are, you are going to make contact, but that may not be the best thing either because now if you've got a runner on, this could end up being a double play ball. So lots of good options for a decent pitcher. Not even a good pitcher, but anyone who's not really a bad pitcher. Struggler is probably the worst of the pitching qualities that you can have um, that and wild probably close, but struggle probably a little worse just based on some of the really bad results you can get from it. Um, if you're a struggler, you're probably, you're going to be giving up the big hit. Most other pitchers have a really good chance of getting either a strikeout or a ground out or potentially a double play. If there's a runner on first for the batter, your chances are, if it's a bad pitcher, you ha you're going to get your hit. But more than likely, if you're a patient hitter, you have a chance at a walk unless it's a bad umpire. And if you're not patient, are you a whiffer? And if you are, you're just swinging and missing, and you're going to strike out instead of grounding out, uh, which may be okay, right? Sometimes you'd rather have the strikeout, which is one out, versus the double play. And all that happens with one roll of one, two, five. And you can see just how complex these results get to be here and how many different factors are coming into play there. Um, I mean, that's to me is like, that's what's happening on this main chart more often than not. Now, the other thing the main chart does really well um, is there's a lot of different ways that it will point you to one of the micro charts. We talked a little bit about the drama results. Drama results are either infield drama or outfield drama, and those are going to be the ones that test the fielder's abilities. What kind of a glove does your fielder have? 
you're going to go to the left, you know, as you're flipping through, you're going to go to pages, you're going to go to page two, and you're going to look at your drama results and see how does this play out. There's three other charts, or really four other charts, but three other main like intangible charts that it could take you to as well. And these are usually color coded. If you have um, in your fielding results, because it always takes place, well, not always, there are a couple places it takes. If you have a result that ends up with a red result, the next at bat will most likely take place on the experience chart. If you have a blue result, in most cases, the next at bat is going to take place on the right now chart. And if you have a purple result, in most cases, the next play is going to take place on the chemistry chart. And we'll talk more about those in another episode. Uh, the other options is there's a couple of places where it will take you to the umpire charts when you'll check an umpire. Um, and those are usually uh, the pitch is going to be either a ball or a strike not a decider for the it's not a walk or a strikeout just a ball or strike extend the count now it's going to be in the hands of the umpire somewhere so you're going to get an umpire result uh, and then there's a couple of the other charts that we mentioned um there's some there's some other micro charts and i guess the uh, intangible charts are more mini just make sure the terminology is right um you've got the drama charts there is a plate drama chart as well um, and that there's only really one of those on the entire book um, that basically talks about if there's a runner on base. And that's basically what's going to take place. So you're going to go to one of these other charts and the micro charts test things like errors or we talked a little bit before about a play at the wall uh, on a fly ball. Um, and then there's also the fence results, you know, with a chance for the batter to get a big hit. So those are your micro charts, and we'll talk about those in our next episode as well. The rest of it is generally going to be one of the three outcomes unless you have one of the special symbols that is on the chart. Now, the other thing that's worth mentioning, too, on the main chart is um, how it handles the base running. So we talked a little bit about the base running on a hit or on a fly ball, or on a ground out. But there are also opportunities for auto steals. Uh, one of the other things that the main chart does is some of the results tell you, hey, at the end of this play, if you have an active runner, or in some cases, not a stoic runner, you're going to have an opportunity. You're going to take a stolen base. Um, and if you have a, if you happen to have a double active runner, they are going to take their two bases there. And a lot of the results in the book we'll talk about, or in the rules, they'll talk about the double, double qualities, double flash, double control, double active. So it does also tell you how to handle certain base running results as well. Um, let's see, anything else on here that is worth mentioning? There are, I did talk about the fact that there's a couple of exceptions. So there are a handful of results that do not allow the pitcher to control and they will go right to the batter. Um, there are only one or there's a couple of results that do not allow the batter to have an option. Um, it goes from the pitcher to the fielder. And then there's, a, like I said, a few that go from the batter to the fielder. Uh, the fielding results always have, there's always an end result for the fielding result. 
Now, from a personal standpoint, and there's a lot of different ways to play this out. The other thing that happens a lot, and it's not just on the main chart, but it is on the main chart. And you heard me read off one of those. Um, there was a couple places where, for instance, that one result that I said was a difficult ground out. And then in parentheses, it says to a choice infielder. This gives you a lot of like liberty to decide, like, how does that narrative play out? Um, I've heard from people who roll another D6 roll just to see like where on the field does that that infielder take place? You know, you got your one through six. Um, does the pitcher play it, catcher, you know, all around there? Um, I personally like to look at the situation I'm dealing with. Uh, who's up, left-handed or right-handed batter? And generally with the main chart, for me, ground outs either go, if it's a choice on the main chart, I usually go to either the second baseman or the shortstop just to increase the number of opportunities they have. Um, and that, that will depend on the hand of the batter. Left-handed batter goes to second base. Right-handed batter goes to shortstop. And then generally I flip that if I go to any other chart in the book. Uh, since they happen less frequently, I will then go to, if it asks me for choice, I will go to the corners uh, for those outs. Vice versa for the outfield results. If it tells me it's to a choice outfielder, I typically will put it to, on the main chart, I will put it to the, if it just says it's a fly ball and it doesn't specify, and I think most of them specify, but if it doesn't specify, I will let it go to the pull side. So again, lefty pulls it to right, righty pulls it to left. Uh, switch hitters would go to center. And that's just kind of how I treat the the options that are given to you on these charts. So that's basically what's covered here. That's how that main chart works. And I think the narrative is really helpful in helping you describe a game in high detail. And it's the thing that really makes this stand out for me than other games that I've played is just how detailed of a result I can get from a simple chart that really is only on two pages. I mean, it's really remarkable that on just two pages, I can get that level of detail out of this book. And I just, you know, the first few times I played this, that was what captured me on this game and really elevated it very quickly to my favorite tabletop game. So this will be a little special series. The next episode I'm going to do will be to touch on the um, other charts that you did that we talked about: the intangibles, the drama charts, the micro charts, and how the narrative takes place on those charts as well. So I appreciate you listening to this episode, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.